Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. I'm your host, Anupadie. Thanks for joining me today. This is a podcast about rapid change in the legal industry. Today, our guest is Augie Rakow. He's the co-founder and managing partner of Atrium LLP, a law firm that uses modern technology to provide startups fast, transparent, and predictable legal services. Augie co-founded Atrium in 2017 with Justin Kahn, who built and sold the popular video game streaming platform, Twitch, to Amazon for close to a billion dollars. Six months ago, Atrium raised $65 million from a renowned Silicon Valley venture capital firm, Andreessen Horowitz. Since that raise, they've grown to over 100 employees and provided legal services to hundreds of clients. Before founding Atrium, Augie was a corporate partner at Oric, focusing on startups. In his practice, Augie learned the ins and outs of representing startups, but also the gory details of venture capital, incorporation, and other day-to-day legal needs of startups. In this episode, we discuss how Atrium plans to change the legal industry, Augie's views on how legal services ideally should be delivered, and the similarities between his studies at Harvard Divinity School and law practice. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Augie, thanks so much for joining me on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It's an honor to have you here in person at our offices at Case Text. Uh, great to be here. I've been a fan of Case Text for uh, probably four or five years since I tried to get you guys as a client a while back. <laughs> <laughs> that's great to know. That's great to know, Augie. You mentioned that you've been a fan of us for three or four years, and that's because three or four years ago you were at Oric. That's actually my first question. You come from a legal background. We're going to get to all of the great work that you're doing now at Atrium, of course, but I want to give our listeners a kind of a, a sense of where you came from. You were a, a partner at Oric. You practiced law on the corporate side for a long time. Yeah. Walk us through that. What kind of work did you do? I mean, I, I know I've read a lot about one kind of big merger and acquisition deal that you did involving Cruise and GM, but what other kinds of work did you do in your, sure. in your relatively long tenure at Oric? I did a lot of different things as a lawyer. I sort of break my career down to kind of figuring out to become a lawyer, then kind of my more traditional period of, of legal practice, figuring out how to become an expert in something and build a practice and eventually make, make a partner. And then what I've done since becoming a partner. During my practice was pretty varied. I started off as, as a litigator. I actually entered law somewhat unconventionally through, um, I started studying law in Japan. I was, I was studying Japanese law. I, I had no real intention of becoming a lawyer. I really like languages, really like foreign language, really like think about society, like thinking about social issues and sort of a a structured framework-based kind of rigorous kind of analytical way. Hadn't really found that in the humanities in a way that I, I found that I liked. And I liked the applicability of law kind of, and all those kinds of threads kind of came together in a bookstore in Tokyo. When I was looking in a, in a law section of the bookstore and came across some Japanese legal books and started working my way through them with a dictionary and, and just really fell in love and left a graduate. Just a casual you know, Saturday afternoon yeah. at a Japanese bookstore. Exactly. I was in Tokyo. Exactly. Yep. I, was li- I was living in Tokyo at the time, I think. Came across a, a book on criminal law and a book on constitutional law and a book on, on civil law, which isn't really, we don't really have civil law, so to speak, here in the right. US. Right. It's kind of the code-based yeah. law, right? Yeah. Right. Because there's everything from contracts to family to, to property and all that kind of stuff. Interesting. A lot of things really came together, and I, I just really fell in love with law as a discipline, as a way of 
a set of tools for thinking about problems. And you didn't find that the structure that you kind of crave, the, the, the structure with respect to policy and, and rules and regulations, for example, in your studies at the Harvard Divinity School. Right. Well, I think law and divinity are very similar. Law is basically divinity with more money at stake. <laughs> It's great. Yeah, that's, that's, the, the I, two, I love that. Yeah, I could get into kind of what's similar about them, but essentially you're dealing with concepts about how to live the good life. These concepts are social concepts. They're human values concepts. They're not like medical concepts, not natural science concepts. They're pretty social concepts. What does it mean to trust somebody? What does it mean to have an intent? What does it mean for a patent to be obvious vis-a-vis -vis another, right. another patent? These are very human concepts. But then taking those and trying to apply them systematically and uniformly, the parallel there would be to divinity school would be systematic theology. So you, you take a, a statement like the son is of the father or something like that. What does it mean to be of something? Does it mean you're the same essence? Does it mean you're two different essences? This is like a systematic yeah. theology type of question. Got it. Have. Got it. And you do the same thing in, in law. You say, what does it mean for, uh, what does obviousness mean? And how can we talk about whether something is obvious in a way that's systematic and analytical so that someone else can apply that same framework in hopefully come up with a similar analysis, or if they disagree, they disagree based on a set of considerations that are left to the individual decider to decide, but so, so it's still a rational kind of analytical, consistent way of dealing with the thing. So using that set of intellectual tools, which are different from physics concepts, different from medical concepts, different from economics concepts, you take those kinds of set of, actually somewhat similar to economics concepts in that there's sort of human, a lot of human value judgments and societal value judgments embedded with them. You take these concepts and you try to apply them analytically to solve day-to-day -day problems. Like who gets the house when a couple splits up? Or how long should someone, should they go to jail or should they just be fined? Or should this inventor be able to assert this patent against that inventor or, or not? Kind of very, very practical kind of day-to-day -day things. Right, that you're using, right. You're using fairly abstract concepts that, that you really pick apart and make sure that they can withstand the edge case, or withstand a lot of scrutiny, right, and you right. use those to apply to day-to-day -day problems. And that, that way of thinking... I just fell in love. I feel like that's the way I've been thinking since I was in junior high. I mean, that's legisl <laughs> yeah, it's legislation and statutory interpretation, right? Yeah, that's, that's right. And so, so those those were the parts that really kind of really spoke to me in that first encounter with law. When I was in undergrad back in the United States, we didn't have law as an undergraduate major. Right. And so you had no real exposure to it as an academic discipline. All you saw was guys studying for the LSAT or something like that, right. which wasn't, didn't look very appealing to me. <laughs> And so when did you make the move over to Oric to actually yeah. start practicing law? I mean, I, I'd imagine that law school was a lot of fun for you mm -hmm. uh, because you got to go through all these exercises. Yeah. But at some point, yeah, yeah. you need to get that job and someone needs to pay yeah. you to do kind of the nitty gritty yeah. and to actually take these deals and licensing agreements yeah. and technology transactions and actually delve into them. Yeah. At what point did that happen and what were your experiences in your many years at Oric? Yes. Yeah, so, so straight up before Oric, I started as a patent litigator at a small boutique called Day Case Beer, which if you're in IP litigation, if you're in IP, you would know the firm, but if you're outside of IP, you would have never heard of it. And it was a very small firm that was kind of like maybe the, the Wachtel of patent litigation. It is very, very high flying cases, tons of money. We, we had one case where there was $17 billion of revenue that, for our client that was being protected by a set of patents. We had three or four people working full time preparing to file a case for one year before we even filed it, full team working out full-time. Full it was very um, high-stakes patent litigation. It was a wonderful exposure until the firm had a problem, an e-discovery problem, and started to, to fall apart. They laid off about half of the firm. Due to an e-discovery problem. That's was, a whole it was, other... It was, one of the, it was one of the first e-discovery... You, you had teams of litigators who had been litigating cases where there might be thousands of documents. 
Now all of a sudden litigating in a world where there's millions and millions of documents. And I don't know the details, but there were some missteps and the firm ended up, five members of the firm ended up getting sanctioned and, and the firm kind of basically fell apart at that point. I remember it was the day after Obama got elected for his, his first term and I went into the office and they, they laid off everybody who wasn't scheduled to go to trial. Wow. So it was time for you to move on. It's time to move on. <laughs> uh, continued doing patent litigation at a, a wonderful Atlanta-based firm in their Palo Alto office called Alston & Bird, which people know. A really wonderful firm. And around that time was started getting serious about trying to build my own. I really wanted to have my own clients. I really wanted to have clients. I got my first client in law school. I, I was really kind of really wanted to have clients and uh, started trying to build a clean tech litigation practice. And so I had a clean tech litigation blog and I would put all these panels and put on probably a dozen panel discussions, panel panels where I bring panels together and invite people out to um, come hear these discussions. And, and it really built up my Rolodex and I started to get inbound inquiries and in, inbound work. But it wasn't for litigation. You're not going to hire like a second or third year litigator to litigate your case for you. You just need a different set of skills. You need some, someone more senior. And it was more for corporate work. Can you incorporate my company? Can you issue stock to my friend? That kind of stuff. And I had no idea how to do that stuff. And for about a year, I would get those clients and then introduce them to people at the firm who could help them. And kind You're of, kind of a junior rainmaker. I was very much trying to be, I was trying to figure out how to generate business beyond the scope that I specialized in. Right. And did that for a while and then just realized I, I, I felt like I was turning into a legal bimbo because I'd get these leads and I would introduce them to people, but then I would just watch the conversation. I couldn't right. really participate in the conversation. I felt like I was turning into a, like a, just a social, like I felt like I was turning into a legal bimbo. Right. And, uh, you were a connector. I was just, I was, right, I was just a connector and needed more. So I wanted to relearn how to do the work. And so I, I started looking around at other firms, met a, a bunch of different firms and really ended up liking the org team a lot. They weren't my first choice going into the search process, but as I got to know them, and it was definitely the right choice for me. It was, it was really a good fit at the, at the time. I started practicing with them and learned how to do venture capital financing. That's kind of where it took off. And then as a corporate lawyer at Oric, I got exposed to a whole range. I mean, there's all the startup stuff that I was doing, which was like 80% of my time, but I really had a, liked to get involved in other, other things as well. I mean, I represented a French energy company in a series of acquisitions across the United States. I represented a major credit card company in reorganizing all of its Latin American subsidiaries under a subsidiary in Spain and all of its Asian subsidiaries into a, a subsidiary in Singapore. I was involved in just a whole range of, of interesting things. It was really, really, if you have an opportunity to practice at a large firm with a lot of different practice areas, it's very good to go out and, and make friends in all different kinds of areas because you get a wonderful education about the universe of law and all the different things and business and all the different things that, that go on. So exposure to a lot of different things. What my, my own personal practice really started to take off about two years into it. I started, I was always looking for ways to stay in touch with a long tail of potential clients. In patent litigation, you only need a couple clients. Sure. In startup work, you need like about a hundred clients or so to have a, a, a real practice hundred or more, which means that you need to have a very large funnel, top of the funnel, which means you need to have about a thousand people out there who know who you are and would think of you if they have a question about their startup. Because each one of those companies needs kind of very small amounts of work done yeah. at certain times. And of course, anyone could become a Facebook, right? But that's not exactly like any funnel. You're going to, right. it's going to, people are going to trip and you don't know which ones are going to be the good ones. So you have to have a really broad, it's not, it's the difference from something like patent litigation is if you meet the deputy GC for intellectual property for Chevron or Microsoft or Intel or something like that, you know that person's a good client, wine them and dine them, see them at conferences, it's worth pursuing. But you meet someone who's got an idea for a startup that they're doing with their friend, it's kind of like high school couples. Three, two months later, they might not exist anymore as a couple, you know, <laughs> they might break up. And right. So it's really hard to So you have to have a really large top of the funnel and you need a way to stay in touch with them. So what I did was on the first Thursday of every month, I would just send out an invitation to every founder who I had met who I thought was interesting. 
And I'd invite them out to a bar, have drinks, and get to know each other. We call it Founders Happy Hour. There's no programming, no agenda right. or anything. It's just come out and talk to each other about what you're working on. And I did that once a month for five years. So we did 60 of them, and it, it did wonders. And it was a business development move, really. I yeah. mean, you obviously loved the space, but it was, to, it was a top-of-the-funnel move. It was business development and keeping me educated about what's happening out in the market. That was really right. the, key, the key thing, yeah. Now, nine out of 10 folks that are in that position, you know, rising stars or risen stars at mm-hmm. Oric, stay in the game at Oric. Yeah. Right? You stay there, you keep making money, you keep doing what you want to do, and Oric, presumably, if you're bringing in that money yeah. would give you carte blanche to do right. whatever you want to do. Right. But you, but you didn't, yeah. but you left. Right. Why? Why? Sure, sure. It's funny you mentioned that. Now I'm also remembering all the fun stuff I did just in the startup part of my practice. Right. I did lots of fun stuff. Uh-huh. Anyway, about how I left and why I left. I, I got to a point in the practice where I felt like I knew how to get clients. I knew how to service clients. I knew how to keep a team organized. And I, I knew how to run the practice. I'd had a couple really big hits and I'd sold a couple companies. So I had some bandwidth in my practice and I could go out. It was time to kind of go out and start doing some more marketing, but I was feeling bored. It was really the main thing. I felt, sure. I felt bored and I felt like I knew how to go out and compete and get the clients, but it was basically competing more or less for the founder's happy hour thing. What I was actually selling to people was the same thing that almost any other lawyer was selling, any other startup lawyer was selling. And so I was competing just on hustle. And the founder's happy hour was just a way of getting in front of more potential clients than right. the next guy. But it wasn't really a differentiated offering. It was just a differentiated acquisition strategy. The actual thing I was selling was undifferentiated. And it felt like it was taking a lot of work to sell it because it was undifferentiated. Right. And I wanted to sell something different so it wouldn't take as much work to sell it. So, so the, Right. <laughs> so them selecting you in that model would just be because they met you at a founder's happy hour and they liked you. Right. Right, but right. fundamentally, we were offering was not different. That's right. You know, in a uh, couple months ago, I think actually over a year ago, you gave an interview to Above the Law, mm-hmm. and and you mentioned something that really stuck out to me, and I, I kind of saved the excerpt right here. I just want to read that out loud and get your take on it. In March, I told my, and of course, obviously, we're recording <laughs> yeah. this in March. It's not March of this year, but yeah. in March, I told my wife I had to make a move. I felt like leaving to do this was the risk averse move. While I love being a lawyer with all its beautiful mental abstractions and like being a big law lawyer, I hated the logistics of being a lawyer, which were a huge part of the job and of no value to the client. If I could automate those logistics and build a differentiated firm, I would have so much more to offer my wonderful Rolodex of clients. And that's exactly what you're you're talking about. Yeah, no change there. When you were thinking about all of the things that you could differentiate, I'm assuming yeah. that was how you thought of it, right? Yeah. You kind of had this commodity and the face of the commodity was Augie and yeah. the, the, the founder's happy hours right. and the fact that you clearly knew your stuff and you're a friendly guy and you were well-connected. But the ultimate thing you were offering in the package, you know, when you open up the packet, you know, the, the box of Cheerios, the Cheerios were the same as the, right. uh, the generic one. It was just one a better called, tour guide for the same tour. Right. Yeah. So what were you thinking about with respect to how you could provide a differentiated offering? Yeah. Um, oh, interesting. Well, the specific things I was thinking at the time, I'd say there's a set of things around the marketing and sales and acquisition. There's a set of things around workflow tools and productivity tools. And then there was a set of things around kind of the, that, I, that I was thinking at the time when we started. And then a couple of things that kind of came later as, as we were really getting into it. Interesting. Nobody's ever asked me this question. So I haven't known how to like a package <laughs> No, no, no. I, I try to ask the hard ones. Well, they ended up being a lot of things we ended up building at Atrium or are building now. One was, you know, when you do a financing, you often have a, a set of convertible notes or safes that convert into the financing. Right. And calculating those conversions involves a lot of very sophisticated arithmetic and a little bit of algebra. Cap no, no calculus. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Pretty, pretty intricate arithmetic and teeny little bit of algebra. 
And it's a very manual process and it can take anywhere from five to 15 hours, depending on how extensive, complicated, and messy things are. And we built a tool, I outlined as we we're kind of testing this idea before I made the decision to go and do this with Justin, I, I wrote up basically a spec, a functional spec for a tool that would do this for us and just mapped out how you would have to kind of trace, track all the concepts about pre-money value, principal amount invested, interest rate, if, if it's a convertible, all that kind of stuff. And just kind of mapped out the, the conceptual flows to show that it's something that could be built. And I, I remember a lot of lawyers at, at the time really thought like it, it can't be done. <laughs> it's almost so humorous, but it can't be done. Is and did they think it couldn't be done with the existing business model? Like you're giving things away for free. No, I think did people they think thought technically. I think people really thought it's like something that's not doable. Kind of like maybe the way people used to think that like you can't build a computer that would beat a human in chess or something. Sure. Like it's sure. Just, I think it just comes from not most lawyers have not been through the process of engineering your way through a problem. Sure. I myself haven't. I also had not had that experience. And so it's just a mental block for a lot of people. It's not really a well thought out position. It's just, it. it's just more of a mental block. Was there any instinct in you that said, why do this, right? I mean, why create a product that, or, you know, I might be giving away for free or cheap yeah. when I could occupy associates, whether it's at work or any yeah. other firm, I could occupy associates that do this and, and bring in huge amounts of Kind like of money. the reverse incentive to- That's right. Yeah. I mean, that, that, you know, especially when it comes down to productization, I mean, there's a massive perverse incentive because products are scalable, yeah. right? And law and the leverage model is definitionally not. Yeah, it just fundamentally, even if you stick to the billable model and you and you buy the kind of mechanical view that hours reduced means less, less work, even if you buy that view, I think it's kind of a, per, a personality thing or maybe a personal experience thing, but if, if you have- seen the power of differentiation, you know that it's kind of like giving away tortilla chips for free because more customers right. come and they'll, they'll, they'll buy more margaritas or something right. like that. It's, sure. it's like that. It's a lot. The, the idea of a loss leader, it really comes back to this idea of differentiation. People come to fancy lawyers when they want insight. I wanted to be and want to be and forever want to be in the business of insight. I do not want to be in the business of providing a commodity service, service just cheaper and cheaper than the next guy. I, I don't want to be in that kind of business. I don't want to be in a race to the bottom business. And so I would much rather help a client close a financing quickly and efficiently and have them be impressed and tell their friends that they close their financing in two weeks rather than two months and have more of their friends come hire me. Like that's just my view. And so I see those kinds of things as pure only, up, I only see really the upside and very, very little downside in, um, in making the work more That makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, we talked a lot about your philosophy on this, your kind of approach to this. At some point, though, you must have asked yourself the question, it is around the time when you were thinking about yeah. moving over to Atrium, you must have asked yourself the question, can I do this internally at Oric? I mean, Oric is a very oh, yeah, innovative yeah. firm. I'm sure, you know, they give their, their people over their partners and associates yeah. a lot of leeway. Yeah. Why not do this, create a differentiated product, maybe something that's productized, and really get to the bottom of it at Oric? Stay with yeah. the kind of old-fashioned provider, you know, no knock on Oric, I mean, just like any other law firm. Yeah. Stay with the old-fashioned provider, but modernize it from internally. I don't think I have the patience to do it. I'm not, I'm not really much of a big organizations person. I don't personally get very motivated by the turning the big ship around. That's just not, not a set of problems that really interest me. So I, I think I had my own impatience was one. Second was I had this very, very unique opportunity. Just six months before I met Justin, I, I remember thinking that the reason we don't have better technology in, in, in legal is because it's such a fragmented landscape. There's not enough money to make in any given pocket and so to attract real talent. To me, the opportunity was that Justin was someone like Justin was interested that created the opportunity someone with access to capital access to engineering talent 
who's interested in this problem. That doesn't happen very often. And Justin here is your co-founder, yeah, yeah. also founder of Twitch, which sold yep. to, to Amazon for a billion dollars. That's the Justin you're referring to. Right, or Justin Conn, right. right. And the fact that he was interested was a huge factor in the calculus. How did you meet him? On uh, Facebook. I had, I had, I had sold his, uh, yeah, yeah. I had, I had hired a, a woman into a unique role. It was part paralegal, part secretary, part sales to just kind of help keep me connected with the broader entrepreneur community. I was getting a little tired from doing the founders happy hours and things like that. So I hired, I thought she was a very good presence out in the community and I hired her just keep me, help keep me connected. She did exactly that. She, uh, I think it was actually after she stopped working with us. She sent me a link to a comment Justin posted on Facebook saying to his followers, like, how much are you guys paying for your, your financings? And he was doing some market research. And she sent me that link. She said, oh, you might want to answer here. And so I chimed in. I was the only, only lawyer commenting on the comments. And I, I said, here's how you control costs. There are two levers. Here's how you control as a practicing lawyer. Here are the two levers you have to, to control costs. Here's how they work. But this is all just assuming the current way of doing things. Justin, if you're interested in like a whole new way of doing things, we should talk. And he DM'd me. And I remember my, my wife was sitting out dinner at, at the time. And I just asked her, I said, hold on a sec. I think this is really important. It could be a, an important moment in my career. And I took like half hour to respond to this like DM and and we, we hit it off from there, just hit off, like, talk for four hours. You know, so Justin at that point had been a consumer of legal services yeah. for a long time. Yeah, he calls himself an involuntary power user of law firm. That's yeah. right. I saw that in an interview yeah. that he had. But at that point, did he reach out to you with his own ideas and you had your own ideas? Obviously, he he was primarily a consumer of legal services, yeah. power user, and you were a yeah. partner at work. I mean, and, and did you guys kind of mash those ideas and say, yeah. hey, this is something. Something's here. I think I helped make some of the ideas more concrete. And the way he, he tells it is, is I convinced him it could work. I think he needed an experienced, accomplished lawyer to come out and say, yeah, this is real. And so I, think I contributed that. This was his idea. He was a driving force. He had the real... What's interesting about Atrium is the real insight... This is getting a little bit old now. It's, we've been doing this for about two years now. But the real insight when we first started was not a particular way of doing legal, a particular product, a particular software tool, and nothing, nothing that specific. His insight, and I think this is beautiful, his insight was from being a power user of law firm, involuntary power user of law firms, was that he'd had good experiences, he had okay experiences, but what was always strange was that the law firms didn't seem to behave like businesses. That's what they didn't seem to right. behave like businesses. His insight was that was it because there's no market for law firm partners' equity, there's no financial incentive for them to invest profits back into building the value of the, of, of the law firm. Makes sense. I, I say it's but like in that framing, there is a lot of value in them bringing in more of Justin's sure. business. So I mean. Just here's like the difference. Here's, yeah. here's the difference. I say, I, say, I say it's like being a homeowner in communist Cuba. <laughs> okay? if, there's, if you have a home in communist Cuba right. and there's no market for your home, you're still going to paint the walls. Right. You're still going to invest a little bit. You're still going to like fill the house with good food and music right. and love paint the walls and guard because you got to live it. You're going right. to live in it. Right. You want it to be nice. Lawyer equivalent of that is I'm going to spend $10,000 marketing, going and sponsoring a conference. I'm going to spend $100,000 higher an engineer and have them build some tool for us. Sure, we're going to do a little bit of that. But nowhere near the amount of investment that you would do if you could go get a several hundred thousand dollar home loan, remodel your house and flip it for half a million. Or if you could do that on like a, a large industrial scale, commercial scale, the amount of investment is different. With law firms, you have people investing, you know, a law firm might invest a million at the end of the year back into kind of operations, maybe maybe to maybe open a new office. Right, like and those, those markers, I, I read an interview online that, that you gave a while back, and you were kind of talking about this exact thing, right? That if you have a, a wealth management company, a consultancy, or any number of things, yeah. you have a marketing department, a BD department, you advertise, you do all these things, you have a CRM, a lot right. of other things. Right. 
if you're a law firm, you don't really do any of those things. You view a lot of those things as overhead, maybe for this reason. Well, they're overhead in either case. Think of it as there are two avenues for that investment to bear itself out. One is you can get more clients and then you have more, more revenue the next year. Right. The other is you can increase the value of the equity in the law firm, hopefully to sell it to someone, maybe to sell it to someone someday. You don't, you don't have that second incentive. Very different from a corporation. I like to use Bill Gates' example because, because he hasn't been active in Microsoft for a long time. And yet every dollar that, that Microsoft holds, holds back from profits and invests back into operations increases theoretically the, the value of Microsoft as a company, increases the value of his stock, benefits him, his charities, his all, everything. Sure. But if you're only looking at current year take-home pay, you'd have a much smaller incentive to invest long-term. Especially if you may leave. You may leave the next year. You may leave right. in five years. Right. Were you doing some of these things? I mean, were you, let's say you were working with a Justin Kahn type of person, right? Yeah. A high flyer in Silicon Valley, extremely successful. Were you approaching that type of, the legal that type of person? Yeah, the, the same way? I mean, were you falling into the trap? Oh, absolutely. You can't help it. You have to. You have to. You're, you're, Why? Well, because you don't, you don't have the, it's a different calculus. You don't have the potential for, there's no market for your equity. Sure. So <laughs> structurally, you're, you're just disincentivized to do right. any of that. Interesting. No, not any of it. It's a matter of degree. Right. It's like the human homeowner. You still paint the walls. You still Got spend it. 10 bucks to get a new flower pot. Makes sense. Yeah. Now, 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 get back to that four-hour conversation yeah. that you had with Justin after he DM'd you on Facebook yeah. when you chimed in and responded to is market research question. What did you talk about? Yeah. And was that kind of the, the founding father call of Atrium? Oh, was that the call where you, you both talked about the ideas that you're now putting into practice? Interesting. Yes. Probably the first conversation was more just trying to get to know each other, how, how each other thinks, things like that. I don't remember the specifics of our first conversation, <laughs> uh, or at least not about the, the business. Right. I remember other, talk, other things we talked about. What, what was your first specific conversation? What was that conversation where you actually sat down with Justin and said, look, this would be our first set of deliverables, or this is what oh, we yeah. pitch investors. I mean, this is what this company is going to be yeah, about. Yeah. We know what the pain points are. I mean, a lot yeah, of what yeah. you just described, but what, what are we going to do about it? Well, it's funny how quickly memory fades. I remember talking with him about how he's spending his time and, and things like that. And then I remember writing up this functional spec for a, what we call the Proforma generator. Right. And I remember I spent eight hours on a Saturday, eight, eight hours the next day on the Sunday. And I remember I uh, wrote that up to close him as a co-founder. <laughs> right. Here's, here's what we're gonna. Here's here's how I see these problems, and here's how I. Can, he's how I he's a big them. fish to get as yeah, a co-founder. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I wanted to, to close him. I wanted to get him. Witness confidence and things like that. And that's kind of my my first memory of like right. substantively talking about like what are we going to do. I think we probably talked about things like, will clients pay on a subscription model? Right. Can you make as much money on a subscription? Or is it inherently inferior purely from a, a revenue generation perspective? Is, it, is there an, an inherent challenge right. in, in fixed fee as opposed to hourly? Because there's a certain amount of, when you bill hourly, there's a certain amount of scope creep that you do get compensated for generally. You do yes. collect against it. So are there inherent challenges? How big is that inherent challenge? How much do we think that software can make a dent in terms of efficiency? Is efficiency really the primary goal for, for software? Or is it something else, adding new kinds of value that can't be delivered through service or things like that? Was it at this point where you kind of decided on this bifurcated model, right? I mean, it's brilliant. The first time I read about it, I, I thought the yeah, that was the first, that was the, Okay, that was the first set of things we talked about because he had the idea for the two-entity structure. Whenever a founder comes to me with two entities that they're trying to raise money for, I always talk to them about the challenges of raising money for right. into an entity that doesn't control the whole operation. Sure. I would have thought that that split two entity structure where they're only bound together by a commercial contract would not be secure enough to raise money. Just given my experience as a, as a venture capital lawyer, that I didn't think that was really, the investors would go for that. 
he had a different view. He felt like there were analogs um, in medicine and then also in terms of investing in Chinese companies and, and Chinese companies going public in, in the U.S., is that you often will have either an entity that's maybe not allowed to list in the U.S. or you have a, 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 a mainland. I don't know much about China, so I'm going to botch some of this. I don't have a lot of Chinese clients, but I, there may be restrictions on non-Chinese nationals owning stock in Chinese companies. Maybe. And so you have a, an offshore company that that you would invest in. They're just bound together by a contract, something, something sure. like that. And you have the reverse of that for companies that are raising money or going public in the U.S. sometimes. And he felt like that was a, a model that's not ideal. Investors don't prefer that model. But if that's the only opportunity that an investor has to invest in a given country or a given industry that they'll accept. And he was confident that they would accept it. And that was his business judgment as someone who's who's raised a lot of money before and he was spot on. So zoom us out now, 35,000 feet. What are these two entities and what are the goals of them? Yeah. So the two entities really, they they work together closely. We, We try to, culturally, we try to have a unified culture where we try to act as a, a single culture, as a single team. We try to work together very closely. We're Nazis about the couple of things that we need to uh, be Nazis about. Sure. Flow of client funds and flow of client information and control over the legal advice. Those for security, both, for attorney-client privilege. For yeah, for, for legal ethics reasons. That's sure. Right. There are other, lots of other kind of businesses where you have multi-entity corporate structure where one entity does maybe the fiduciary portion of a business. Right. Or one entity does... A portion of the business needs to be cordoned off from the rest of the company. There are many, many examples of that in legal and, and other industries. So we have very strict rules around the, the handful of things that need to be managed from an ethics perspective. Sure. But other than that, we really try to act together. Zooming back out, I mean, one fundamentally is a product yeah. company, right? And another is a law firm. I guess the idea, I've read about this fair amount just online, but the idea is for the law firm to take on clients just like Oric would, maybe compete with Oric, and build a true blue law firm that can be an Oric, a Fenwick, et cetera. And the other side is meant to kind of monitor what the law firm side is doing and build products, optimize, Mm -hmm. make things efficient. Is that a good encapsulation of the structure? That's right. The law firm entity deals with the clients and payments from the clients come into the law firm entity. That's right. How's that going? How yeah. is that? How is that structure going? And and what are the interplays between yeah. the two sides? I mean, you're both in the same space, the same right. building, and you work together and all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah it's um better than we thought it might. The challenges. I would say that the challenges are unique for lawyers. I think because we tend, you know, not a lot of lawyers have experience working in a multidisciplinary environment. Cross-functional environment. Cross-functional. We do not have that experience working cross-functionally. We just don't have that experience. And so we have to invent a lot of things. Like how do we make decisions? How do we set a roadmap? How do we set priorities? Things like that. I think that the places where there can be some friction are more like the normal occurrence at at most companies. I mean, I think that's, that's, that's typical at most companies. You have engineers working with finance people, working with salespeople. They have different careers. They have different ambitions, they have success means different things to them. And, and the, the the challenge of running an organization is getting all these people who have have different interests and different aspirations aligned together on a common goal. And that's actually building a business is. And um, typically law firms don't do that, right? I mean, when I was practicing law, I was working with other lawyers. Yeah. I mean, it'd be rare that I'd work with anyone on the tech that's side, right. maybe some, sometimes on the marketing and pitch side. I mean, when we go to law firms or some of our engineers go to law firms, Attorneys got a big kick out of the fact that they're working with someone on the tech side because right. they, they haven't talked to anyone on right. the tech it's exotic. side. You're right. Exactly. Exactly. And so is that one of the kind of black marks against law firms that Atrium is, is kind of solving? Oh, right? You have all these teams that 
deliver work product to the client better because you've got all these different disciplines all working together. I think what we're trying to do at Atrium is pretty different from how you would do something similar at an existing law firm. I think they're, it's a different, very different challenge. And I, and I don't think it's the two entity structure that makes the big difference. I think the single biggest factor is the fact that we're starting with a blank slate. If you're starting with an incumbent existing law firm, it's like trying to change a Thanksgiving dinner into a birthday dinner, Christmas dinner or something. It's like very different from making a Christmas dinner. <laughs> sure. the, the, the challenge is all in how you change existing things. The, the skill sets around change management. We will get to that point. Right now we're still pretty in. We don't have for, for us, it's more how do you set a direction among teams that haven't worked together before, don't have experience working in this kind of space together? And what kind of talent do you need? What kind of lawyers do you need? That's when you're starting with a blank slate. Sure. Do you go partners first? Do you go paralegals first and build from the bottom up? You have all these kind of blank slate questions where you have to say, like, what's the zero to one of this thing? Right. Which is a very different set of questions from how do we change the direction the ship is going? It's a very different skill set. So how how have you built the law firm side of Atrium yeah. differently than you would have built, you know, Rakow and Associates? Yeah. We don't really think of it in terms of like the law firm side, the tech side. We, we've, we used to and brought, really brought the two sides together culturally much more now. And so we do think in terms of like legal team, engineering team, but we don't really tie it into the, the underlying legal structure, except in those couple ways where we need to for, for ethics reasons. How would it be different? Well, I mean, we have research, we have options. We have, we have money we can invest. We need to be profitable, but we can be profitable on, on, in larger cycles. So we can take a year to become profitable. We could take a couple of years to become profitable. As long as we have a compelling plan, we may be like Amazon and be constantly reinvesting and, and deliberately sort of not profitable as long as we can show what switches we would need to flip in order to be, to be profitable. Right. And so we have those kinds of options to in, invest in our operations in a way that if, if I were just serving clients on my own and trying to bootstrap from, from those revenues, I, would, I wouldn't really have those options. So it's really the fact that I have a, a blank canvas with resources is the single biggest, like unique distinguishing factor in terms of comparing us to other models or other, other law firms, or if I were to start something on my own. I would say today we look fairly similar to a regular law firm. We look fairly similar, primarily in the sense that all of our revenue comes from advising clients. We don't have any revenue from clients that don't use our, our services, that are only using software. We don't have a lot of tools that people are paying to use independently of the service. We, we make our money by providing legal service. And in that sense, we're very similar to a law firm. And our staffing model is fairly similar to it. Partners, associates, legal assistants, all of that. I would say client acquisition is different. Sales is different. We do sales separately. We don't have a partner out there generating the sales, except to the extent that I work with the sales team. And I do supervise the sales team. But we have a sales team generating. So we don't have a lot of partners around. And we don't lean on partners to generate the work or to manage the relationships. That's different. But in terms of the actual work that we're performing and the types of people we have performing the work, very strong associates from Cooley, uh, Gunderson, Norick, Wilson, all, all the major firms. Mid-career thoroughbreds do, doing the work. Why did they take the plunge to go to Atrium? Equity? Uh, yeah, does yeah. this go full circle back to equity? I think it's just different versions of the same reason I, I came to do it. It's you know, smart professionals who want to use their brain doing something unique. They don't want to just grind it out for, for someone else with kind of blinders on. on. They, want, they want to have a gratifying career where they're doing something unique and, and different that, that distinguishes them and that will accrue to their professional prestige as they progress through their careers. And I think that a lot of people in the, in the law firms can feel like they're getting ground up a bit by the system, can feel like maybe they don't have a good mentor, can feel like they don't really see a path to, to um, a gratifying career and they want to try something different and unique and, and Atrium is, is the option for them. There are others who want to go in-house and they see this as a nice transition because they get to kind of work in a cross-functional, multidisciplinary environment. They get to see how a business is built. 
and then take that and go go in house. In addition to that, they get to step away from the billable hour, right? Is that exactly. is that a part of it? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm sure huge. a lot of it's a stated part of it, right? I mean, the billable yeah. hour for me, yeah, this is just just from my experience, but I've certainly heard yeah. it a lot. The billable hour was one of the worst parts of yeah. of being in practice. I mean, the structure just seemed to not incentivize me to do the best work. Yeah, I have this whole talk I give on on the virtue called the virtues of the billable hour and why we don't use it at Atrium. <laughs> I see. I, I have this kind of contrarian view. I, I think the billable hour is actually this sort of underappreciated innovation. That how so? We talk about the billable hour a lot on this podcast. So, I mean, I'd love to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To... I think I think the billable hour is more of a symptom of of the underlying problem. I don't see it as a source of the problem. I but, agree, but but it isn't unraveling it one way to to attack the the you know the systemic problem. Maybe not. Yeah. I mean, in order to improve as a business, you do need to get off the billable hour because if you're on the billable hour, then your revenue and your costs grow or sink together. Right. The delta between your revenue and costs doesn't grow. Right. And and that's that to me as a now with an entrepreneur hat, business person's hat on. To me, that's the biggest problem with the billable hour. I would say the second biggest problem with the billable hour is that. Um, when your professional teams are thinking about the billable hour that much, the, the biggest downside is just that they're thinking about it that much. <laughs> That's yeah. the biggest downside. You know, the, the amount of time and effort and creative energy that just goes into that 5% of your brain that's constantly thinking about, that's waking up in the morning, thinking about, oh, i got to pick up my kid from school, i got to do that, how am I, I need to, in order to stay on track, in order to not get into a deficit, I need to at least squeeze in eight hours. The fact that that is factoring into your thinking for the day is a problem. And to me, that's the second biggest problem with the billable hour. The virtue of it, the, the billable hour enables you to make apples to apples comparisons of contributions by extremely diverse workers. You could have a emeritus bankruptcy partner in San Francisco and a patent litigation paralegal in Beijing, and you can compare their contributions. It's not the most high fidelity, high resolution comparison. It's not qualitatively that insightful, but it is an apples to apples comparison of number of hours, how many hours did they work? What was the billable rate? And what percentage of that did you collect from the client? It's an apples to apples comparison of two very, very diverse workers. And it takes like a payroll team of like three to manage those inputs for a workforce of a thousand people spread around the world. It's amazingly efficient. Right. Billable hour is pretty incredible that way. So, Flexibility. Right. But Atrium, as far as I understand from, from reading about it, you guys don't even track billable hours, right. right? Is that correct? Well, so the view is we want to measure the process, not the person. Interesting. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, we do track hours and we, we're starting to more so. Like any business, we want to understand our operations. We want to understand how much of a person's time goes into reviewing a contract on average. That's very different from saying, we're going to grade you based on how many hours you work. It's a very different. different Got it. Thing. Got it. We do grade, people quote, on their contribution. Of e course. Economic right. and non-economic contribution. But we measure the economic contribution in terms of the, the total aggregate value of the subscriptions that they're managing and the fixed project fees for work that they're managing, not on the number of hours. I work. love how you refer to it as subscriptions. That is yeah, just the, yeah. the, the, the perfect Silicon Valley way yeah, yeah, yeah. to refer to, to legal work. That's great. Yeah. So on the, you know, right now, Atrium kind of operates in a lot of ways, as you just mentioned, like a law firm, yeah. right? Like any other law yeah. firm in certain key, very interesting, yeah. differentiated ways. In five years, in 10 yeah. years, you name it, how is the kind of product side of mm -hmm. things and the efficiency side of things going to really differentiate Atrium yeah. into now an organization that doesn't just make, you know, 100% of, yeah. uh, of its revenue on providing advice? Wouldn't it be great if your contracts that your sales team is, is looking at 
got tracked and stored and some of the inputs from those, those some of the data in those contracts got tied into a larger database that spoke with your inventory management or yes. with your, your billing team, your payables or receivables team. Or if your offer letters and hiring and option grants and all that kind of stuff got tied into your HRIS systems, HR systems, or into your cap table, or just the kind of integration across the other software systems that your company is using. Is that Atrium's main focus, kind of being the platform that aggregates all of this stuff and provides insights internally? I mean, is that the, the main thing? We want to provide full stack solutions to companies and to full stack solutions to their legal problems. So we do not want to just provide legal advice. We don't just want to provide pragmatic business oriented advice. We actually want to address the more complete problem that the person's come that the company is coming to us with. And so if they are coming to us asking for advice on how to grant equity to employees in France and make that comparable to equity to employees in Texas or Mexico or something like that, and they're coming to us with what looks like a legal question or what it starts, what's presented as a legal question, we would like to be able to not only provide the legal advice, but um, be able to advise them on an operational solution that can make it so that this problem doesn't come up again, or it makes it easier for them to manage and keep track of this problem as it comes up over and over again in the future. Not just call us every time this problem comes up and we'll bill you every time this comes up. Call us with this problem. We'll look at it both with our lawyer hat on as well as our legal operations hat, maybe with our engineering hat. We'll understand how you manage your information and how the different teams in your organization need to use that information. And we would like to provide a solution that is not only legally sound, but is operationally efficient for you as well. How is that different than what Ernst & Young, especially with their acquisition of Riverview and other big four auditing consultancies want to do? I don't uh, have a lot of direct experience with them. They aren't active so much in the, in the U.S. I have to compare them kind of one by one, and I would need more information to answer that really intelligently. At some level of abstraction, you could say it's not too different. I think that we will have more of a software focus. I think sure. we'll have a, more of a Silicon Valley answer to this. I think we'll have more of a Justin and Augie type of answer to this. It'll be unique in, in, that, in that regard. I think we aspire to play at a higher end of the market than most of the accounting firms, but I don't want to speak for them, and they do great work, so I don't want to ignorantly make categorical statements. I don't know. We have to kind of see what they're what they're going to do. I don't. I haven't really seen sure. much from them. I'm right. not sure they know yeah. what they want to do right. in exactly. the U.S. I mean, they know what they're doing in Japan and Australia and other places. So ultimately, in again five ten year horizon, is there a place for Atrium to sell productized legal services or just a product to a potential client himself or herself? I mean, you know, have. Uh, thousands of startups using not Atrium legal services through Augie, uh-huh. but Atrium products. Is that is that where this is all going? It could. We try not to get too far out. We try sure. not to, okay. to, to plan too far too far ahead. I think how clients react to what we're providing today and, and see what they tell us and, and kind of respond as, as we go. What are you hearing from the clients that you're already yeah. working with? That you know, what is what is working well better at Atrium than at other Silicon Valley firms? Uh, a few things. We've learned slash confirmed that companies are comfortable buying legal services from a non-lawyer, from a professional salesperson, and in a lot of cases, they prefer it. Interesting. Why? I think because they look at it as a business decision. And lawyers are not very familiar with framing legal needs as business decisions. Good lawyers are good at giving pragmatic legal advice. That's different from looking at the legal procurement decision as a as a procurement as a purchase decision, as a resource allocation decision. That's different from what's a pragmatic way to resolve this legal what's a pragmatic way to resolve this legal issue. Good lawyers learn how to give pragmatic solutions to legal issues. The next level is 
really how the client looks at it, especially at a, at a, a larger client, because this doesn't happen so much with startups, but, but later, they look at the legal purchase decision as an allocation of resources and what they get for that allocation of resources compared to the other, given the other options that they have. One thing that we've learned is that clients are not only comfortable buying legal from a non-lawyer, but in a lot of ways prefer it because they can ask the kinds of business questions about the, the service in a sure, way. Sure, maybe the professional salesperson is you, is speaking their language. Exactly. Right? Lawyers, I think, sometimes can be very isolated from right. the business decision. All they want to talk about is this statutory section, or all they want to talk about is this clause. That's right. And they, and they may go further. So give a, a pragmatic sure. a kind of a, a, a way to incorporate this advice into the, the business. But that's very different from like, should I even be looking at this issue at all? So that's, that's one thing that people like to buy legal services from a, from a business person. Second, clients respond very favorably. They love to see that we are trying to improve our operations day by day. That just gives us so much goodwill with the client that we get that constant feedback. They see as we ship new products, they, they see what we're shipping and you can see how much they, they appreciate it. Third, clients like good account management. Sometimes lawyers can provide it. Sometimes you need a professional account manager to, to provide that and clients like that. It's very effective. That's another thing we're learning. And what are your, what do the account managers at Atrium do? Yeah. What's their role? Anything from sending out invoices and following up with inquiries on invoices to checking in with the clients, asking how they like their experience working with Atrium. And Imagine that. Lawyer. Yeah, exactly. Explaining new product shipments to them, um, rollouts, finding out what needs we're, we're not addressing or that, that they didn't think to come to us with, all different kinds of stuff. Is this something that you think is is being copycatted for at other parts of the industry, right? Because if I was at a, a large Silicon Valley firm or a firm elsewhere, I'd look at what works at Atrium yeah. and just steal it and say, okay, yeah, we're going to get some account managers. We're going to have maybe some work done, alternative fee arrangement style. We're going to get some process engineers in and maybe yeah. have the best of Atrium. I mean, what's missing? Yeah, I, th I think there's been a trend toward that. And then I think we've accelerated the trend a bit. But I think there's already been a trend a trend toward that. We have seen some a, a good amount of like, oh, we've got that too. Very shortly after we announced our funding, a couple law firms announced blank, blank firm labs, you know, where they're doing you know, tech development <laughs> right. or something. We saw a flurry of press releases about how companies are, firms are investing in legal tech companies and things like that. So there's been that. I've also heard from friends at other firms that they're trying to figure out how to pitch against us. It's, it's very different. Normally when they, they pitch against a client, they, they, they know which lawyer the, the client's talking to at right. their firm and they can say this or that about that lawyer. Here they're often talking to a salesperson or, or a business development representative or a um, SDR or something like that, BDR. And so that's very different. And they're trying to figure out whether they should pitch some. We're pitching subscriptions. They're pitching something. They're wondering if they should also pitch subscriptions or change their pricing or things like that. So, so I know that there's been some reaction like that. I haven't seen significant hiring or investment in response, but I have seen marketing in, in, in response. Always comes yeah. first, right? Yeah, uh, so. Augie, uh, you've been you've been very generous with your time. I have one last question for you, and that is an intentionally broad question that kind of zooms us all the way out, yep. right? So, from from your perspective as a leader in legal technology, right, someone who's practiced law at a very high level and now leads uh, a prominent company that just raised sixty five million dollars in in the legal tech space. Where's this all going? I mean, what yeah. are your kind of top level observations, predictions, et cetera, of legal technology and the delivery of legal services in the next, let's get past 510, let's call it 20 years? Yeah. I think the main thing is, is proliferation of options, proliferation of choices. So if you put yourself in the position of a, of a general counsel of a company, the number of options you have to get your legal needs met will grow. You have law firms, which are going to continue to grow and differentiate and, and all different kinds of, even just within the traditional law firm world, 
you have the whole world of alternative legal service providers that kind of walk that line between legal process support and legal advice. You know, companies like Integrion. And sure, like that. Axiom. Right? Axiom, yeah, that's a little more of a staffing thing, but mm-hmm. yeah. But you also have those as another kind of option. So you have this proliferation of options. Meanwhile, at the same time, you have, I need to come up with like a catchy phrase for this. My phrase for this so far is finance is eating legal. Uh-huh, interesting. Yeah, finance is, is leading legal. Another way to think about that or describe it is um, the growing importance of the CFO's procurement function in outside counsel and legal vendor selection. So bypassing or overriding the GC. Or, or putting, putting guardrails around the decision. This, just like any selection of any other vendor. So it's not just the, the judgment of the GC, but it's becoming a more professionalized operation, which means more greater, greater finance focus. And I think that that's already very advanced in the Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies. It's trickling down to the, the kind of baby unicorns and not quite into the startup world yet, but, it, but it's, it's coming. And I think that's a huge trend both for providers and for GCs for their own just leveling up, but also for the providers to come to, come to terms, especially next generation of lawyers. I would say that people who are at the height of their practice right now can probably ride out the next five or 10 years with it, with their existing client relationships and, and, and won't be too affected by it. Right. But people who are coming in, especially ones who are advice to young lawyers out there who are or paralegals as well, who are looking for an, an edge in their legal careers, I would say get very smart about legal operations and get very smart about procurement in procurement's role in legal, and it will give you an edge in, in talking to clients. Very it's, interesting. It's the of the future. Very interesting. Augie, thanks again for joining us here in person at Case Tax. It's been a, a great pleasure having you, and, and thank you. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com. Tweet at us with the hashtag Modern Lawyer and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.